I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to the seventh episode of Caro Pop, part two of our excellent conversation with Mitch Easter. He's basically the godfather of Jangle, except he dislikes the term Jangle. Easter produced R.E.M.'s first single, Radio Free Europe and Sitting Still, the band's debut EP, Chronic Town, and their first two albums, Murmur and Reckoning. These are all landmark recordings and I've played them a gazillion times. Mitch Easter brought his creative, unfussy production approach to other tuneful bands as well. He got great sounds out of Game Theory. The Velvet Crush, Pavement, and many others, and we'll hear how. Then there was his own band, Let's Active, which in the 1980s recorded an EP, a foot, and three albums Cypress, Big Plans for Everybody. And Every Dog Has His Day. In part two of this Carol Pop conversation, Mitch digs into the creation of those Let's Active albums and reveals some cool stuff about recording R.E.M. What is that weird pulsating sound that opens Murmur? Where the heck did those slow motion explosions in We Walk come from? And why? Mitch also talks about working with the late Scott Miller on the Game Theory and Loud Family albums. If you don't know about Scott Miller, you really should. Miller also loved the jangly power pop approach of bands that came after Big Star, but he layered on a West Coast sensibility and some synths. Mitch Easter has illuminating stories to tell about the making of those Game Theory and Loud Family albums as well. Mitch Easter spoke to me from his home in the Winston-Salem, North Carolina area, where he still records bands at his Fidelitorium studio. I'm grateful that he filled two Carol Pop episodes with his stories and insights about making some of my favorite albums and navigating the ever-changing music industry. What does he think of the digital revolution? You'll hear about that too. Please enjoy part two of my conversation with Mitch Easter. You do Chronic Town, uh, so five song EP for REM, their debut on IRS, uh, and then Murmur. Tell me about sort of the progression of recording those two records and sort of what you took out of those to, you know, apply to other stuff you were doing. Well, the thing that was, you know, I'm, a long time ago, uh, Don Dixon said to me that he always loved to get to do at least two records with a band because when you do the second record, everybody knows everybody. And, you know, that is actually really true. I mean, for me, that's a great thing. So Chronic Town was like that. You know, we had more time and we knew each other and we were able to kind of, dare I say, explore the sounds a bit more, which was super fun. And some of the stuff some of these music concrete kind of things that I love doing, you know, like 
making physical tape loops and stuff. We did some of that and you know backward sounds and all that jazz. You know the you know the old timey studio nonsense. We, we got to do some, and so I love doing that. Plus, they just got better. I felt like every time I saw them, they sounded just somehow better, and it just in the way you get when you play all the time, which they did. Um, but you know, Chronic Town has a great batch of songs, and I guess maybe the first one I heard was that song "Wolves Lower," and I thought this song is amazing. This now this by that point they really were writing songs that to me were like I couldn't compare them to anybody else's song. I, you know, Radio for Europe I could see sort of as kind of like garage rock or something, even though it's awesome and it's them. But I can't think of another song that reminds me of Wolves Lower. You know, they were getting more distinctive, which was thrilling. You right. know, and. Um, so I just have sort of like all good memories of of, of Chronic Town, you know, because uh, mainly because we knew each other. And then Murmur, you know, was weird because, as has been reported, it was kind of a start over situation because, you know, we did Chronic Town before they were actually signed. But Murmur was done for IRS records. So there was the, you might say, the heavy hand of, you know, the corporate people, you know, even though they were trying to be cool, it was still different, you know, felt different. There were expectations, you know, they wanted us to go into a nicer studio, which we did, and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, the most significant sort of thing was the fact that they had already been set up with this producer to record with when they didn't like it. So it made them, um, you know, kind of unhappy about recording all over again. So we had to kind of build this new trust in the studio. But I mean, I think we did, you know. But it really felt different. But one, but by the time we finished Murmur, it felt also super good because it was. It, it ended up being a creative record, you know. It was. They had become so worried that the corporate world was going to make them make this cheesy, dated record that they wanted to make essentially a live record in the studio, which we had to kind of talk them out of, you know. Um, and we did in a way that I think worked for everybody. Um, so you know, just a real different, different, different vibe, you know. But good, good memories of that too. So on these, those two records, were you getting them to kind of slow down a little bit? Because I know they they played everything at kind of lightning speed and live at that point. Yeah, well, I think they wanted to slow down a little bit when we made Murmur. I think they, and and maybe it was something about the time of year and the studio and everything. It's you know because we did Murmur sort of in cold weather at Reflection, which was like a big studio that looked like a proper studio, and it had this sort of vibe of music history about it or something whereas my place was so much more like band practice you know at that point it was a garage you know so um for whatever reason i think they were in this more moody you know you know look outside at the snow kind of vibe that record sort of feels like that but it wasn't like we told them to do it the only thing that was like that was radio for europe which they were you know the label wanted them to re-record because they heard it as a single, and um, and we did re-record it, and I think it was Don Dixon that suggested they slow it down, which I kind of wish they hadn't. But that version is cool. Um, I always say that I wish it was a composite version that had the sound of the murmur one, but the speed of the hip tone one. You know, um, right? Anyway, the drum sound sounds like nothing else on any of their records, basically. On, on that one song, yeah, yeah. Well, the the reason for that is because the snare is overdub there's a snare on top of the snare that was played live and that was done to get this particular sound out in the room with a distant microphone and much compression and stuff you know and 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 that wouldn't have worked probably if the song was faster so that's that's kind of a cool sound that especially for back then and it's kind of you know the, the fact that it was slowed down kind of worked for that i think i think don was thinking that you know it, 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 you would take them the song better 
if it didn't just whiz by you quite as much, you know. I, I may be remembering this wrong, but I think that was sort of the thinking. And it was a breakthrough song for them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it did well, and it sounded good. So, I mean, I think he's right. It was clear that way, you know. Uh, and, yeah, you know, for for the longest time, if you saw them live, everything was twice as fast as the records, which I think is actually sort of correct, you know. I mean, when you see these bands nowadays that are really, really super pro, and they are probably they probably have the backing track or a click track in their in-ear monitors or whatever you can it doesn't have enough energy you know it's too controlled you know i think what you need for a record is not always what you need for a live show and i think when bands play their songs a little bit faster live that's okay you know it's yeah i always like that about live shows you get that adrenaline yeah. kind of picking it up and it's different and uh, I, I remember actually because i would see rem on each of these tours and there was some point where the tempos live were more maybe around life switch pageant the tempos live were closer to what they were playing in the studio and i, I was like oh i kind of liked it when i was like so I'm like whoa <laughs> it's a runaway train yeah i think a lot of bands get to a certain point where they think we're acting like kids let's get professional here and i don't know if that's what they were thinking or not but i'm with you i, I sort of miss you know the the kid version you know of so many things um and you know um I've probably mentioned this before too, but when we recorded Chronic Town, that Wolves Lower song, we did a version of it that's exactly like the one that's on the record, but it's like twice as fast. It's so fast. I don't even know how they physically did it, you know. And even they realized it was too fast, you know. And so we re recorded the whole song like sometime later and slowed it down. And it's still not slow. I still like that. And I, I've always, you know, I think people my age are, you know, excessively concerned with age. And I always thought, I am not going to be one of those guys that, you know, gets old and plays all my songs really slow. You know, like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, I, I want to keep that. I mean, I still like the rock thing more than the not rock thing, which to me means fast or at least some fast songs. It's funny because I think people look back on, you know, Murmur and Reckoning and Chronic Town as like, oh, they're kind of these stripped down productions you know they're sort of spare compared to sort of a lot of the overproduction of the 80s but you actually were doing a lot of things to to tweak the sound they just weren't these sort of 80s dated sort of things going on right i mean i think the fact that we had to kind of start over when we made murmur was good for everybody you know um the way it, the way it played out because you know they were very much resistant to electronic sounds and you know in hindsight that was smart right i mean you know the records that were big hits of that year um are the ones that now people are complaining about their dated sound although give them another 10 years and it'll be seen as fantastic sounds i mean all sounds seem to go in and out of fashion but that murmur record is so acoustic you know everything on there is a very traditional. I mean, the, the most electronic thing on there is the electric guitar. You know, everything else is pianos and vibes and, you know, cymbals and stuff like that. You know, so it's 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 sort of not of its time in a way. It's like a record that could have been made 30 years before if people had the same ideas, you know. So it, it is kind of hard to pin it down. And when we got finished with it, um, I really wondered if people would hear it as like this sort of 70s sounding record because in some ways it is certain sonics on there are kind of more 70s but you know that that ended up serving it well and that's also because the band were very much determined to be themselves you know and that was of course one of their great strengths you know they did not give a flying whatever about what somebody else was doing you know which was cool um but at the time you know i imagine that some people were disappointed that they they didn't make a more slamming modern kind of record, you know. I don't know. 
Yeah, it's not, well, it sounded modern to me at the time, but, uh, and so I think like we walk was, uh, you had pool balls slamming into each other and slowed down. Like what are the other kind of experimental things going on in there that you might not notice? Cause it just sounds right. Well, I have to say about, we walked it, that is still to this day, truly strange. And, <laughs> but I love the idea that we did have this attitude and this is maybe from Don Dixon and me trying to figure out what to do when they were first so resistant to production type stuff. Once we kind of got going with some thread of things we could get away with, which was like pianos and things could sound odd if they were produced by the band or were real, you know, so they liked that and they liked and they were down with things like slowing tapes down and just the idea of cool sounds. They were just super resistant to what the the Thompson twins were doing, as I like to say back then, you know, so it's like, okay, fair enough. So then I guess we did, you know, we wanted to unleash our whatever side with the funny sounds. And when they would accept it, it always seemed to us that the song got better, you know, but the, we walk one is truly random and it doesn't make any sense that it's in that song. And yet it does sound really good. And we'd really miss them if they weren't there. So that's all I got to say about that. Um, I guess what I'm saying, I'm very proud of the complete ridiculousness of having slowed down pool balls throughout a song. Uh, <laughs> but are there things on other songs that didn't make it? Like, you know, like like there's the cut of Perfect Circle with like the chicken in the background or something? And no, no. And I don't know. And it never I don't think it ever really got silly. You know, it was always kind of like semi for real. But, you know, you might laugh a little bit at some of them. But I, I'm trying to think of, of answers to that I really don't think there's anything that compares to We Walk. I mean, I think the other things would just be it's a it's a Hammond organ bass pedal that's mixed in with the bass and you don't notice it, but it makes it get heavier in this one part, you know, and just stuff like that. There's tons of that kind of stuff on that record. But as far as like heavy handed weirdness, I don't think there's a lot. We, You know, that record does have a few of those little instrumental thingies in between songs. And those were just like... Um, edited things made up of noodling around they would do before a real take you know so it was sort of created stuff like that you might say in the control room but it was all based on things they had done um but you know the, the recording techniques were just things that amused us you know using some distant microphones sometimes and things like that but it, you know in the end it just sort of sounds like music it's not too obvious um, but I'm sorry I can't think of an, an, an a we walk level odd sound in there. But oh, well, I can tell. Well, there is one. There is one weird one, and I've probably said this many times. But this is to this day a mystery. Doesn't the version of um, Radio Free Europe start with these little sort of pulsy, staticky kind of sounds? I think it does. And then the drums come in with the boom, boom, boom thing. So um, that was really weird. We had a new reel of tape that was a blank tape you know, opened it, opened the box for the first time and put it on the machine and somehow or other, you know, maybe hit play just to wind a little bit of tape onto the reel. And we heard this noise and, you know, the tape is just a sheet of plastic with iron oxide on it and it's two inches wide. But so the individual tracks, there's 24 tracks, they're very narrow. They're just, you know, a couple of millimeters across or something. So one of the tracks had this static noise on it that had this cool sound like it's, you, you know, uh, the, it's the transmission from another galaxy, this irregular static sound. That doesn't make any sense at all. You never get a, a brand new reel of tape with a sound on it, period. And this tape was made by 3M, which was a very reputable company, and um, they've been making tape before just about anybody. And we, and we actually called them up and told them about this, and they said, that's impossible. But there it was. So we thought, okay, this is a sign from 
somewhere in the cosmos. We have to do something with this sound. So what we did is we took the baseline of the part that you might call the pre-chorus, the thing that leads up to the chorus, the raving station part of the song. We took that bass pattern and fed it into a thing called a noise gate, which is something that turns on and off in the presence of a sound. And then we use the noise gate to turn the static noise off and on. So um, the the static noise from outer space triggered by the bass part in the pre-chorus is the sound you hear leading into Radio Free Europe. And I think that's pretty cool because, you know, subliminally, maybe it can be understood that it is related to the song, that it's not just noise because it's modulated by the bass part. Um, we thought, why not do that? And so that's another one that's kind of random as all hell, but um, is on that record. So is it wait? Is it the bass part and the static mixed together, or what do you what do you? You don't hear? you don't hear the bass. You just hear the uh, the static. But the thing that's making the static pulse the way it does is the rhythm of this bass part. So if you think of you know it's that doon 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 doon. It's got a certain rhythm to it, and you can hear it pretty well. So if you've heard the song a few times, it could somewhere deep in your consciousness resonate that that part is somehow related to the song because it's the same rhythm, or or not. It might just sound like there's something wrong with your record. I don't know. But you know the idea that some people would think that they got a bad pressing of the record was also amusing to us. So we we were all for that. No, it's just kind of like the, the lead into the album. Like, here you go. You know, it's it's like it's the it's the it's the crowd noise in Sgt. Pepper, but different. Right. It's it's a foreshadowing, but it's a possibly incomprehensible foreshadowing. But it does have an actual meaning. So then you go and do Reckoning. That was in a different studio, right? No, um, same place. Same place. Okay. I think so. I think that I'd read something that made me think because you'd moved to the different studio for Murmur and then stayed in that studio back with Don Dixon. What was, what was different about your approach to that album? Um, Well, the the thing that was different was that the band was really on tour at that point. They were really playing all the time and everything. So um, just to be an annoying person, I think I said that, yeah, this is your Led Zeppelin too, because you know, you were required to hate bands like that then. But it, to me, struck me as the same thing, because on two, they were recording in all these different American studios, you know, because they were playing a lot. Um, Whereas the first album, I think, was done all at once at, you know, Olympic or someplace, you know, so... um, that was kind of a joke, but it was the truth. They were a real busy touring band at that point, and there's a kind of urgency in some of the way they were playing that sort of sounds like that. I think it's to me, it's not as a th- it's the record isn't quite as 3D. It's more two and a half D. It's more like a stage record, you know. And that's not true of all the songs because some of the songs are very kind of studioy. But when I think about some of the songs on there, like Little America and stuff like that, they they just seem like songs that a touring band would would do, you know. Um, but it, you know, it, it took about the same length of time and, and all, but it, it sounds different. Um, you know, I, I had gotten sick right before they started, and I, I wasn't there like the first day because a lot of the very beginning is just sort of setting up. But Don Dixon started it. And, and I walked in, and I, it kind of felt like I walked in on somebody else's session. You know, it, was, it just felt different. Um, and it just went a different way. I can't really say how. It just felt different. And... Um, the drums were recorded a different way, you know. That's sort of the basis of the sound is always kind of the drums, you know. So it, it right away had just sort of a different sonic tone, you know, and that sort of led to it just being a different record. Um, but I mean, it's a cool record too, you know, and and it's you know it's good because it's still strong. I mean, it's still it's not like they didn't have any ideas, they didn't have any songs. It's still a bunch of good songs, um, but it, it doesn't seem 
as much like you know you pull your blanket around you and read your book on a cozy day. It's it's more of a outward sounding kind of record to me. It's just different. Did you come out of Reckoning sort of less satisfied with how that album had come out? I can't remember. I, I think I felt the same way probably they did. I felt like I was busy, you know, because I was really busy around that time. I was playing pretty much myself and and recording other things, you know. When I think of Reckoning, I think of sitting there with Peter Buck and doing some guitars, and I think about just moments in the control room, you know. But I just have not as many memories of it as Murmur, and I think it's just because we were just busy. It, it, it is the last thing we did with them, and I think we did sort of feel like things were moving quickly, you know. So when they started talking about the next record, they were still talking to us, but all these other producers were interested in, in them, and, you know, they were real sort of nice about it, and... Um, were acting like they wanted us to still be involved. But what if we also brought in Blah, you know, and stuff? And I just kind of didn't want to do that. I thought, you guys need to go check this next thing out. Because, I mean, if I were in your position, that's what I would do. I would just, you know, I think they were, you know, they, they did want to just explore the world, you know. Um, I'm just saying that you didn't ask the question, but I think a lot of people think that there was a falling out or they were we were sick of each other. I mean, it was nothing like that at all. But, you know, our band was playing with them some in those years, and we would play and there'd be these producer guys out there hovering you know people were interested in them by then you know and um i, I thought they should definitely just check out something else if they had any inclination to do that yeah i've seen interviews with you where you get asked oh did you feel bad about it you, and and you've reiterated over and over no I, you know i don't they, they if you can go to europe and record your next record if you go work with these other people you, know, you should do it that's what the this is this is all about and i think there were sort of some i think i had a slight dread that they would do something that struck me as like "Ooh, why are you doing that you know but they they did the, the next record with joe boyd which struck me as like now that is cool nobody's gonna expect that and that but that totally makes sense for them you know and so you know i, I was i was all for what they did you know i just wanted us all to get to do good stuff yeah, Joe Boyd at that time was most known for, you know, like Richard and Linda Thompson's Shoot Out the Lights like a year earlier, and he'd done, you know, Pink Floyd, Arnold Lane way back when, and the UFO Club. So, and it's a very murky sounding record. Um, and then after that, they went with Don Gaiman, who had done uh, John Mellencamp, and that was that was the first time where you're like, oh, okay, this is this is a little different. Yeah, and I, and I have no idea what the process was there or anything but i remember I, I was around mike mills right before they did that record and he was telling me about the title which he had thought of and from that movie you know and i thought oh this is fantastic and and you know they were they, they were looking forward to making that record and it's great you know so i mean things were still making sense you know um i mean the thing about them is that they had such a strong sense of themselves they weren't going to lose it you know no matter who they made a record with then you're doing Cypress and then Big Plans for Everybody. Did, did you end up playing most of the instruments on that record? Yeah, it, you know, the the band, um, you know, unfortunately it didn't last very long. You know, Sarah Romweber left and I was really upset about that because, you know, I just felt like we had forged this little thing and it just needed to go on a little bit longer. But, you know, she was 20 or something. So, I, I you know, she her life was totally in a different place than mine. And, you know, I didn't know what she was thinking, really. But we did carry on. But for a while, there there sort of wasn't a lineup. And, you know, in those days, you really were supposed to sort of put out a record every year, more or less. And so it was time to make one. So I just did it like that. I mean, I had always done demos of stuff. I like I love doing that, you know, playing all the stuff because I can kind of figure out what the beat's going to be and 
and things like that. And even at the very beginning, I had done demos of all the songs just to show them, like, okay, here's how it goes. It was a very efficient way to work, and I love that, you know. And they didn't copy exactly what I did, but it, they referred to it, which was useful. So I just continued that process and was, you know, slightly more careful about it and just made that record mostly by myself. The, um, there's a couple of guest stars on that record, but it's mostly me. That was the record that when it came out, I probably played the most and still go back. I really love that record. And it's it's got this the songwriting is very, very melodic, but there's a lot of kind of, you know, there's sort of like those kind of 60s psychedelia things going on, which I always like. And, you know, then these pretty, you know, acoustic things like Badger and this you know, like still dark out kind of has this groove thing going on. Um, but. I, I don't know how you felt when you finished that one, but I was like, oh, this was a, the next step, you know? Yeah, I sort of thought that, too. I, I thought it was pretty good, you know? Um, when I hear it now, there's a little bit of a sort of primness about the recording that I would make a little crazier if I was remixing it. But I think overall, I like that one, you know? The the Cypress record is splashy sounding in a way that one's not, and I kind of, you know, for a while there, I thought maybe it was too unsplashy, but I think it's... I don't know. I think it's got its own vibe. I think it's all right. And then Every Dog Has His Day was kind of the more muscular rock record that came out afterward. Yeah, that one feels, still feels weird to me, and it kind of always will. You know, we we, um, we were just trying to get IRS's attention one last time, although we knew they were completely not interested in us, um, by using a real producer, you know, and we got John Leckie to do it because we loved stuff he had done. But he didn't seem to be too interested in seeing us as like some of those kind of bands that we really loved that he had done i think he saw us as like moving into the american market possibly and so he was thinking of us in this sort of american kind of rock and roll kind of way you know and i mean we were doing that a bit you know um but the songs that are on that i just wouldn't have picked those songs you know some some of them i like some of them i think are just yeah, you know, I wouldn't. Have I love Horizon on it, um, but it's it's very different title track, which is like that, that's that's sort of my problem because like I sort of I sort of well Horizon was supposed to have been on the previous record and or the one yeah the previous record but Faye Hunter left the band too after a while so uh, she sang that song and and um, you know when I made the um, that other record I I didn't have anybody to sing it I, I you know it was meant for a woman to sing so. Um, um, it just got sort of shelved, but I, I sort of inserted it back into the Every Dog record to keep it from being just full-on bar band, you know. Um, and, it, and in a way, that sort of doesn't do a, a service to that song because it doesn't exactly fit with the record. But I just wanted – I mean, we were still more of that kind of band in a lot of ways, you know. Even though I had written that – like, I like that song, Every Dog Has His Day, and it was pretty much produced the way it was supposed to be produced. But um, – some of that stuff on there, you know, just strikes me as uh, fillerish in a way, and I think it's just because John heard those as rockin', you know, which I guess they are. But I wasn't feeling it as much, you know. I still had my sort of Horizon men mentality going um, too, you know. Yeah, you're like I want the John Leckie who did the Dukes of Stratosphere, you know. Yeah, kinda. I mean, but we didn't have that psychedelic set list, you know. I mean, I mentioned that record a lot, but maybe he was thinking, you don't want to do that. That was a novelty record, you know. I don't really know what he thought. So there's R.E.M. and then, you know, another band that I totally, you know, associate with you because you worked with them a lot and with him a lot, and Scott Miller with Game Theory and then eventually The Loud Family. Um, yeah. 
so so that's that's something where you have like you know someone like yourself who's really like he's got a band name but he's really in charge of every aspect of it as opposed to rem which is much more of a collective what was what was it like working with game theory compared to you know other bands that you've done well i really love them you know um i thought scott wrote great songs and you know he was great to talk to and maybe the fact that it was kind of him in a lot of ways. I mean, he was very nice to his bandmates, but it was definitely his baby, you know. So um, there was a great efficiency about all that, right? And um, he was just super creative, you know. And so whereas bands, in a way, have a kind of conservatism about them, there was none of that with him, you know. So um, and, and he had the kind of bands where his his you know fellow players would just kind of do what he said you know and again in a very organic kind of way they just respected him that much and liked him that much so i felt like we could really go to town recording those records even though recording wise they're you know they're not that crazy but there was just a lot of sort of sonic stuff in his songs and things to get a hold of sound wise that was just really pleasing to me you know i, I liked all those records and they're all really different from each other um those were super fun. I mean, I'd, those records and the and the little bit I got to do with Helium with Mary Timoney are probably some of the most creative kind of sessions I ever had because of that freedom to just make it happen. You know, he it's interesting because he's another sort of musical kindred spirit. He's covering Big Star. He's got this very nice melodic sense. He's got you know sort of a not big rock and roll voice. Just sounds like himself. But he's from. LA as opposed to you know Winston Salem or Athens Georgia or something like that how did his LA-ness you know factor into what his record sounded like well he's really from uh, Sacramento I think and I think when I met him he had gone to school in Davis you know so they were in Northern California um, uh, loud no one of the last game theory record was done or mixed in Santa Monica or someplace but uh, for the most part they were Bay Area band but anyway he um yeah, they were they were the same and different. You know, the thing that really impressed me about California bands back then is it really felt like if you're from the East Coast, you know, and I had never been to California until 1983 when we were played there on tour. So it's it's sort of amusing how much you realize that the TV of the old days was all shot in California and is very California centric. You know, that the vibe is super a thing. And you get there, and there it is, and it's like, oh. And I felt like that was true in the bands, a kind of a suburban thing that's different. I mean, we have suburbs here, but they aren't suburbs like there, you know? And it was interesting to me at first. Like, there were all these sort of, you might say, band taboos that applied all over the East, the South and the North, you know, that were not true out there, like using shameless, big, foamy synthesizers that if I had tried to use those on an REM session, they would have had me murdered, you know. That was a big part of the game theory sound. You know, they weren't afraid of stuff like that. They just went for it, you know. They didn't think it was cool or uncool. They just thought they were instruments, you know. So in a way, they were, they were sort of freer, but at the same time, they, I thought sometimes maybe they could use a dose of East Coast something or other you know <laughs> you know what i mean and and i think i wasn't totally wrong about that because i would do those game theory records and play them for some of my friends here and they didn't always take to them and what they kind of didn't like i think was that i think they felt like the sounds were sort of fruity and like from the mall or something whereas like rem's sounds came straight from the georgia woods you know they, there was a kind of legitimacy that they thought 
West Coast bands like that didn't have, like there was something insincere about it or something, which I didn't agree with that at all, but I know what it was they latched onto to make them say that, you know. But anyway, for me, it was just interesting because there was, you know, tons of interesting information coming out of everything that Scott wrote, and that's what I latched onto. And I kind of liked the freedom from taboo in their sound. You know, we could do some stuff that I just couldn't get away with in most of the bands that I worked with. And I'm just not that much of a purist, so um, it was interesting, and it was different. But, I mean, there's so many other kind of California bands that I don't know anything about, like all those, like, super tough guy bands, you know, that came up in the 90s and who have, you know, big beards and shaved heads and wear shorts and stuff. You know, that's a, there's all that stuff that I associate with California I don't know a thing about, you know. Um, so at least the, the game theory basic mentality really was the same as what I was doing and knew about, but... It did have these California notes about it that were different. Um, and like I say, for lack of a better word, that felt felt sort of suburban, but they were certainly smart. They weren't dumb, you know, or silly, or they were just different. Yeah, I think the most striking sonic element of that compared to, you know, the records you were doing on the East Coast is just, is the synths. Um, and they kind of timestamp it a little bit, you know, when you go back, because it was just such an 80s sort of thing. But they don't necessarily sound bad. I mean, like sometimes they sound really good, and then sometimes they sound a little bit like, ah, maybe they didn't need, need quite that much synth on that one. But that's, that's him driving that sound, I assume. That's not you coming in as a producer going, hey, let's, let's put some synths on this song. Yeah, I mean, I always felt like we worked together, you know, and from the first time I, I mean, with any band I work with, so from the first time I saw them, they had synthesizers, you know, it's like I'm not going to come in and say, oh, well, you know, that's got to go. I mean, that was critical to their sound. And, um, you know, it was fine. I mean, I just don't like to, you know, make that be what, what it's about as much as the overall sort of mood or intellectual thrust of it. You know, that's where it's at for me. Um, I don't know. What can I say? I, I mean, and I like a lot of music that people call bubblegum, right? I really like bubblegum records, some of them. And, and if people want to call some things bubblegum, I'm like, sure, dude, that's fine. You know, there's there's more to life than, you know, the blues, you know, or whatever. I mean, I just, you know, I, I don't like this sort of hierarchy of legitimacy that starts with this super feet on the ground, you know, living the hard life, you know, coming up through the ranks. All that. I mean, that's great and everything, but that's not all there is. You know, there's so many other kinds of things you can do that are cool. So fluffy pop bands are cool. Scary blues guys are cool. You know, doom metal bands are cool. It, you know, it's all okay. It, it's just these are all little worlds that we create around records. And if I can find something to like in them, then I like it, you know. And so I, anyway... I just I just came through it was one of those things they that I liked and yeah you know there are there are some sound things that I wouldn't have done but it was their sound I mean it just it would have been kind of crazy to try to tear that up, you know? I'm assuming he's the one who wanted all those kind of cult sound collages on there and callbacks to other records and like little snippets of things that would sort of start off the record that you'd heard starting off two records earlier and I mean even on Loud Family yeah. like one of the first sounds you hear on the first Loud Family record is like a snippet from a Game Theory record. And Lolita Nation, tons of stuff like that. Well, in Lolita Nation, we did that record. um, We recorded it at my place here. And, um, you know, this is all being done on tape machines, you know. And a part broke on the 24-track tape machine that that we had to order a replacement part for, you know. And this was the old days of calling up the place and ordering the part and waiting for it to show up. So we had to kill some time. And we did that by recording some songs on a different, on a 16-track tape machine, and um, 
so we couldn't work on the album proper because that was the 24 tracks a different format wouldn't play on that machine so we recorded the great big sound collage that's on Lolita Nation as part of that, which was all kinds of stuff and references to old records and new found sounds we made and a couple of other weirdo like instrumental songs and stuff. Um, but he always liked that thing. And I think that thing of referring to his own records was kind of funny. And so like that no one twisting his arm thing has popped up, you know, more than once. And and uh, well, yeah, he started doing that right away. And I just think that's just like not unlike the thing we did with the bass and the key and the static on Radio for Europe, you know, it's just like, I don't know, it's like, you know, I think when, when we used to listen to the Beatles by the time we got to the White Album, you really did feel like you were immersed in their strange world and that was kind of a journey or whatever, it was fun to be there. And I think Scott was doing that kind of thing. Yeah, I think one of the tracks on there, wasn't, wasn't was it the first... He had one track on there called Turn Me On Dead Man. I think that was maybe one of the collages. Yeah, he was full of references. I mean, he, he is the first guy to refer to Kenneth What's the Frequency. You know, uh, um, that's he did that before R.E.M. did. And, of course, some people now know where that came from. But at the time, a lot of people did. Now nobody does. It's just oh, stuff like that's fun. Yeah, people think it's R.E.M. instead of Dan Rather. But, yeah, no, I remember he did that, did that first also. Um, and then... Was the Loud family like really anything different from Game Theory, or was it just him with you know some different musicians? Well, it was it was pretty significant. I think it was in, in some ways it was like I think all along you know he had been given advice as as one will get about what he should do you know, and um, which he kind of resisted. But I think with, with the every single sort of thread to the old Game Theory was gone. He had to sort of start something new. And there was there was a sort of transitional band that might have been pretty interesting with him and Joseph Becker, who was the drummer in Loud Family, and Michael Quercio, who was you know super pop you know LA guy you know, and they did have a and I don't know if that was called Game Theory or what at that point, and I think they did that for a little bit, but it didn't persist, and I think mainly it was just logistics. Um, and then when he started the Loud Family, it was just a restart, and I think that you know the the thing is by then the. There was a sort of heavier sound in the air, you know, especially in the United States. The, the, the scene, whatever the scene was that we were all in, had had gotten more, dare I say, macho and punkish again. You know, grunge was starting to bubble and that kind of thing. You know, so I think the idea with the Loud Family was that it was going to be kind of a more sturdy kind of band and not quite as, you know, you might say lightweight sounding, you know. I don't know how intentional all this was, but anyway, he had this more manly rock band with all men, you know. And they were all really good players, and I think, you know, this maybe was also a thought that with this sound, you know, it, it's more commercially viable. Record labels will take them more seriously because they'll sound more kind of massive, you know. He added this uh, lead guitar player guy, which that struck me as like a bad idea, but it was fine. Um, you know, he wasn't going to be the main guitar player anymore and stuff like that. So it was pretty different. Uh, but, you know, he still had great songs. Uh, I, I thought a particularly good batch of songs, you know. Do you think he was happy with how that all played out or still frustrated? I don't know. I mean, you mean like career-wise? Yeah, I guess career-wise, artistically, I guess, too. But, but yeah, it all comes down to career, I guess, at some point. I don't, I don't know. You know, he was... Um, he, he, he didn't talk about that sort of thing a whole lot. I mean, he talked about it a little bit, but he... He just sort of worked on things, you know. Um, the thing is, by the time of the Loud Family, I think he was starting to work himself in, in his kind of real computer job that he ended up having, you know. And I think he kind of enjoyed that. So I don't know if he was giving up his rock dreams at all, but 
he was he was kind of a real a sort of a practical kind of guy in a way, you know. And I think he was just doing what he could. And you know, I, I know that like they were still resisting some advice that people were giving him. And I remember one that strikes me as kind of funny, and I feel sort of tacky saying this, but I just will anyway. Apparently, somebody had said you guys should play vintage guitars, and they thought that is so lame, you know, to pose to have old guitars. But I remember thinking to myself like maybe you should because. Again, you know, coming from the East Coast and going out there with the Loud family, like their lead guitar player guy was this guy who loved Eddie Van Halen and was playing sort of those kind of guitars, which is a turnoff to the audience that Scott Miller kind of had. And even if that is sort of silly to concern yourself with things like that, it's just a fact, you know, that if that guy had come out with some like bright pink guitar and was doing dive bomb stuff, people would have thought, what the hell? Yuck, you know? And, but Scott was so open to everything. He could imagine incorporating that into his songs and he kind of did, you know, pretty well. But, you know, I guess I felt like maybe you should actually consider what your audience is a little bit more than just being like, no, this is us. This is what we do. And it sounds good. And we're not going to be, you know, um, following a trend just because we're told it's a trend. I think maybe if they had done a little bit of that, it might have served them well. But I just don't think they were interested enough to really want to do that. You know, I think they were just sort of iconoclastic, really, and just did their thing. I don't know. Were you in touch with him toward the end of his life? I hate to put it that way, but uh, since he's no longer with us. No, I mean, I had seen him a few times in, in later years. I saw the Loud family, one of the later iterations of that, play in in Carborough, which is not too far from here um whenever that in the 2000s you know at some point that was good and i had also heard he had this weird idea of going back to the lolita nation record sort of became their big record to a lot of people and um you know he and i, and I think there were talks of re-releasing the catalog which did ultimately happen you know um anyway he contacted me about working on lolita nation again and he was going to re-sing the whole thing. And I just don't know why he wanted to do that. Um, <laughs> you know, but it, didn't ever, it, it never happened, and I'm glad it didn't. Um, I think those redos on old records are always a bad idea. I was saying, I don't know why he would want to do that. I don't either. It's not like that You know, he had become more virtuosic as a singer, and obviously he's better now or anything. He just always sounded like himself, and he always sounded cool. But he had it in his mind that he could do all those songs better, and it was worth doing. Um Anyway, that's the kind of contact I had with him just a little bit. I never knew a lot of these people sort of socially. I just saw them when we worked on records, you know. And that's the same with him. I, I just saw him, you know. I used to see him once every year, year and a half or something when they made a record, and that's it. time with you you had every dog has his day in 88 which was the last let's active album and then you had dynamico in 2007 um did you were you writing songs all this time or did you just take a break like what was the what, what was the deal of this 19 year gap between records just stupidity i mean you know it's like after the let's active was over i really felt extremely unfashionable because i was you know i mean nobody thought I was cool anymore. It's like, oh, that's from the 80s. You know, we don't like that anymore. I really felt that. And that was stupid. And it's not like I went off to lick my wounds. I just went off and worked in the studio and I just would record stuff and just have it, you know. Um, by the time the Dynamica record was made, I had a lot of stuff like that. And I had sort of a dead summer and I just thought I'm going to start working on this thing and 
get a batch of songs together. So some of them were sort of old, and some of them were pretty recent to when the record came out. Um, but I mean, I think it really was just being realistic. I wasn't going to really be able to have this sort of rock band touring kind of, you know, life that I'd had before. I was just too old, you know. I mean, it's like there, there's sort of nothing behind something like that. Unless you're really big, you can't really have a comeback tour on the kind of career I had, you know, and have it be viable. Uh, but you know, um, the idea of making recordings and putting them out is super appealing. And and I like so like today, I've got the same situation that I had then. It's like if I didn't have all these sessions that I need to do, I would be probably recording myself. But I'm still in the recording business, you know? So it just sort of takes over. Um, and, it, you know, it didn't take over as much when I was younger because there was truly a career out there to have, you know? But, I mean, the whole music thing is so different now. Um, so, you know, if, even if you were sort of popular, when you go out now, you 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 don't make the same kind of money you used to and stuff, and it's just, it's just strange. But anyway, I, in theory, I'm always writing songs, and in theory, I'm always imagining putting them out. So that's where I'll leave it. Did you see yourself in any of sort of the later bands coming out, like you know, like the Elephant Six bands, or something like the Apples and Stereo? I would hear that, and I would think this is kind of like you know, if Mitch Easter were making these records now, this sort of seems like it's in some of some of it at least seems like it was sort of in. You could have been under your umbrella or the same umbrella. Yeah, that stuff's great. Yeah, I like it. I, you know, I, I didn't know any of them at the time, but um, those are those are really great records, and it seems like it was a good fun scene too. Did you did it remind you of you at all, or was it just something you liked? Um, I guess I just thought of it as likable, and like, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess I just thought, well, you know, that's a that's a whole new generation of people doing that. I didn't really feel in, like injecting myself into it, but I really liked it. And yeah, I mean, there is sort of a conceptual overlap there to some extent. And you're still running your own studio, Fidelatorium? Yeah, Fidelatorium. That's just a made-up Latin word. I had this idea of having the studio just being called studio, you know. So I just thought if you had a Latin word for recording studio, it would be Fidelatorium. Um, but, yeah, I still have I still have that. So, like, what kind of bands come in there, and you know, do you, are you recording them in a similar way as you used to, or is everything digital now? Do they want different things, or do they want that kind of classic Mitch Easter sound? Yeah, nothing has really changed. I mean, nothing, you know, there's a... You know, things are deliberate, but they're not talked about. You know, you just, I mean, what am I trying to say? I always think that people may assume that there's more of a manifesto about what goes on than there is. It's more just like, okay, here's a song. Let's make it sound good. You know, that's kind of always really the whole thing. Um, but, yeah, you know, in, in a way, for me, it hasn't changed a whole lot. The kind of bands that come in that want to work with me are still normal bands that I can understand, um, which is a good thing. Um, but yeah, we do record on computers now, and it um, almost all the time. And that's there's just a lot of reasons for that. Um, there's good and bad things about that. Um, you know, I, I do feel like I'm getting a little near the end of doing this um, because the computer stuff has and everything. The lack of uh, sales, the lack of immediate feedback from things. I think it's made people a little, get a little strange. You know, I think people are having a hard time getting finished with things. They've gotten real picky, and the computer allows you to pick on stuff forever and do all these revisions forever. And I kind of hate all that. Like, I really think that's just death. And um, and yet, it's like a genie you can't put back in the bottle. You know, and I just really don't enjoy that. So I'm 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 telling you that I, I really am trying to sort of 
somehow just get back to recording me and my friends and stuff that I can do kind of in the old way a little more. It's not like I think when people think about things changing, they think about things like we're using samples and stuff. And it's not that it's really this kind of. I don't know, just kind of worriedness that's crept into bands making records that I just don't enjoy. And since I've done this for 41 years, I'm thinking, well, that's a long time. And I just don't want to spend like an inordinate amount of time making a record. I just think, finish this one and make your next record, you know, and that's just getting harder and harder for people to do. And it's just their attitude, you know. A lot of these bands are great and they get hung up you know, too easily. And you just couldn't get hung up in the old days because things were moving faster and I just really miss that, you know. So that's what's different. It's not really what we do musically or, you know, um, with our motivation when we record, but it has changed. I think part of it is that notion of like on Pro Tools or whatever you're looking at, you can see all of the vocals and chords and notes played uh, charted and you could be like, oh, look, that one's like a little bit off. Let's move that over on the screen or something like that. And you could sort of obsessively fix every little thing and you're, you're kind of sacrificing human element to make it quote unquote right and i would imagine that would just be really tiresome when you know the best records ever made are human and have mistakes on them but you don't care because it's the sound of people performing yeah i mean i think when people were first making rock records on pro tools they were really it was like there's all these things that certain there's always a a range of what people are going for right there's always a, a perfectionist group in any endeavor right so you know it was thrilling like say when really kind of realistic sounding drum machines came out the famously the lindrum you know and then you started hearing all these lindrum rock records and you could tell something wasn't right they were just too steady it's like oh god you know and it was kind of off-putting and people got sort of better at it and people got used to it and then it became kind of a standard and it's like, what has this done to music? So some people would say this was terrible, and other people would say, no, it's great. Everything is just better now, you know. And the drum machines did, I think, make real drummers actually kind of get better. I saw like a lot more real drummers kind of rise to the occasion and sort of do cool things that I think had been set off by the presence of drum machines. So recording on the computer should be kind of the same thing. It should be an interactive effect, right? It's not a one-way street. And you can record Delta Blues on a computer and leave it completely raw. You know, you totally can. But if you're a perfectionist, then you can go in there and start cleaning it up. And, you know, where that is really still basically the work of the devil is in country music. You know, most country music that I hear when I go into a restaurant still sounds like it's like humans that have been turned into robots, you know, and I really think it's pretty horrible. But not all country music, just some, you know, some of the other producers are are avoiding that, you know, but it some people can't resist. You know, it's like at last every note is perfectly in tune. Oh my god, I've been waiting my whole life for this, you know. And if you have that attitude, you're going to make some records that are probably going to leave me cold. But then when they go to number one, because listeners have a sometimes have a totally different perspective and they just think they don't even know what they think, but they like it, you know. So it's like you can't argue with that, right? And everything is like this, you know, every development is like this. When more tracks on analog tape machines came out, a lot of producers said, Well, this is the end of music, you know. And so I don't want to get into that trap, but the computers are such a leap into that world, it does go wrong and i would say that a lot of the or it can a lot of the records that i work on are they're never really slick like that but they just they just get picked at too much you know 
And you can, to me, I just feel the sort of, I just feel like the blood drains out of them the more that happens. You know, I just don't like doing it. But at the same time, you know, we're not working for record companies anymore. You know, in the old days, we'd be like, well, you know what? We've got enough money to work on this record for three more days, and then the session is over. You know, now there's sort of not that limit, you know, and so it, it really is kind of bad for some people. Um because they just don't know when to quit. And, and I'm probably exaggerating this. We do a lot of sessions that just move right along and, and are great. And I want to keep doing those, but I want to um, try to avoid these ones that I feel like are, are going wrong. Um, I mean, the other thing is that like bands have a lot of built-in problems that we're sort of not supposed to talk about. You know, we're supposed to love bands. But again, the evil record companies were kind of useful sometimes in not letting the bands totally have their way because... A lot of bands have like one member that's like a grump, you know, that kind of slows everything down or whatever, you know. And when you're kind of working for the man and the man says you have to be finished on the 30th, that's kind of great. You know, so everything is completely like personal now. And I don't think that's 100 percent good development. You know, if the band has the ability to work on something forever and that's what they want to do, I'm kind of out of there. You know, my attention span just isn't infinite, you know. Um so I'm saying the same thing again, but I do feel like that has been wrought by a combination of the uh, computer technology and the lack of commercial reality around all this stuff. Yeah, the Adele's putting on her fourth album, and uh, in the time that she's put out four albums, I think the Beatles formed, played in Hamburg, had their entire career, and had like the first five years of their solo careers or something like that. I looked it up at some point, but like they were doing like it from like the time from like you know from Hamburg to, you know, Band on the Run or Walls and Bridges was like Adele doing four records. So it's just a different thing. Neither here nor there, but um, you well, know, certainly the bands that is, I was... What, the, the thing that's a drag about that is that, like, poor Adele probably has, like, all the pressure in the world on her to make this, like, record that sounds like was recorded, you know, and mixed personally by Jesus Christ or something. You know what I mean? There's this expectation of mega ultimateness, you know, that is exhausting. And it's like that blockbuster movie mentality getting into records just cannot be good. I mean, Beatles records were blockbusters in their day, but they were still not about that. They weren't about perfection. They were about, what are they going to give us that's really cool and interesting? You know, that... You know, and and the people that make these slow, careful modern records think they're doing that, but they never have that feeling. They they never have the energy and the spirit of these things that were done more freely. You know, with less worry, basically, less less heavy expectations. Yeah. No, I, I'll, I won't belabor this point. The, the the first Let It Be, you know, sessions were two months after uh, the White Album. I mean, three months, October to January, um, and then boom, they're at it again. So it's 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 crazy. All right, I'm going to give you one last question, um, which is a for some reason, you know, the lightning has struck. Whatever, you've got to run out of your house with one guitar and one record. What are they? Oh, that's horrible. That's that's Sorry. so that's cruel. <laughs> oh well, let me think about that. See, the problem is, is that what I the record is always going to be the last thing that I heard that like really freaked me out. You know, as being great. So, you know, the last record that I heard that I just thought, oh, this is so good is this like Ray Conniff record, you know, <laughs> that my wife brought home, you know, and it's like, wow, this sounds amazing. I just want to keep listening to this, you know. So, I mean, that's that, but that wouldn't be the one, you know, like sort of culturally, right? But sonically, it, it is. Well, maybe right there's now. like some record that's like, it's, you know, you got that signed copy of 
something or I, I mean like i don't know if there's like an actual physical record that you have a personal yeah yeah no, i know what you're saying i mean it would be it would just be some rock record that has a lot of to me um well, depth has kind of a, become kind of a hokey-sounding word here, but because it sounds too serious. But there are a lot of records I can play over and over. You know, I can play Shazam over and over. I can play the White Album over and over. You know, it'd be some record like that, I guess. You know, but um, but if I was thinking of it as like you know my last moments on Earth, maybe I would grab my copy of Walk Don't Run '64 because I think that's the first record that I bought, and I really thought about the sound of it. And to this day, I don't know what the hell is going on with some of those sounds. So. Maybe it would just be my single of Walked on Run 64. And and the guitar would probably be that Blue Rickenbacker, because that one was the guitar that I sort of got to do the music thing on. You know, I had guitars before, but that's the one that I was playing when I got to be on TV, you know, and, and get out in the world, you know. So I guess, let me just say, it's Walked on Run 64 and the Blue Rickenbacker. Good. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much, Miss Jeezer. This is so fun for me uh you know i've just enjoyed so much of the music that you've you know written and recorded and produced and performed uh i saw i saw let's active you know i think i think the first club show i ever saw might have been let's active at cabaret metro in chicago and and yet you still went to see bands that was it you know as opposed to the big shed shows i've been going to um i saw you like tt the bears and in Cambridge and I think the paradise also. So anyway, it's, this is a total treat for me. And, um, I didn't even get into the windbreakers and other bands, but you can't cover everything, but well, thank you absolutely. so much for making this work. Well, thank you for talking to me. Uh, um, it's fun to talk about this stuff and it's nice to be reminded of it. You know, I mean, I feel, I do feel really fortunate that I have gotten to do this stuff and I'm still doing it because it is actually what I wanted to do as a teenager, you know? So, um, the fact that it means something to people is the reason why we do it. So um, thanks for you know telling me that it means something to you. That's it for episode seven of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Mitch Easter. So gracious, generous, and smart. Now I just want to hang out and listen to records with him. Be sure to seek out those Let's Active records as well as Dynamico, his solo album. You also still can hire him as a producer at Fidelatorium Recordings. How cool would that be? Next week's Carol Pop guest is a killer. And that's all I'm saying for now. Except that this will be the place to listen. Thank you to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Caro Pop theme. For production, engineering, and arranging work, check out Karma with a C Productions worldwide. Caro Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who's also a drummer with a keen sense of groove. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M A R K C A R O, and visit the Caro Pop website caropop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Caropop podcast. Thanks.